0: Hey guys, I'm Katie. I'm Hannah. And this is the podcast, Sussex, a show where we don't just want to feed you the true crime obsession,
1: but we want to shed light on some stories and situations that don't get a ton of attention. And today we have two really wild stories for you.
0: We're very excited. This is also our first podcast, so please bear with us um, if we make any mistakes we are still getting the hang of it. So with our two cases today, Hannah and I decided that we were going to pick a theme for each podcast and then pick two cases that go within those themes to kind of keep it different every week so we're not accidentally picking the same cases as well. So we do have two cases for this theme this week, and it's going to be um, individuals that have either – murdered or killed their family and or their children. And I know mine is very, very heavy on the heart. What about yours, Hannah?
1: Oh my gosh. Mine is just like devastating. When I first um heard the story and started researching it, I was just bawling. It's just it's just a bad situation all around.
0: Yeah, I I can't wait to hear which one you pick. So we do want to just bring to the attention of the podcast that um Any case that we will be discussing obviously is very, very serious. Anything that we say regarding the case, um, it's not in a joking manner, but because it is such a deep situation, if we do have jokes and some things that we try to say to keep the situation a little bit lighter, um, please understand that we're not joking about these victims or the situation or anything that happened to them. It is truly awful. We just want to make sure that we're not getting sucked down with the way the cases might make you feel.
1: Yeah, so definitely. So with,
0: with that, Hannah, do you want to start or shall I? Um, Why don't you go first? Okay, I will go first. Let me get my handy-dandy little notes here. And, guys, please bear with us as well. As we do more episodes, we will get some more um, advanced technology such as microphones and different things where the audio is a little bit better. But um, we're starting with what we have. So here we go. Okay, so my case sitting in that I'm going to be telling you about is Andrea Yates. Have you ever heard of that case?
1: The name sounds familiar, but I don't know a ton of the details.
0: Okay, so it is a case that honestly a a lot of you probably might have already heard of, Um, but I don't know if you guys, like Hannah said, know all the dirty details, and it is very, very awful. So I will go ahead and get started with Andrea so we'll start with just her story, how she started off, and then we'll get into the crime case. So Andrea was born July 2nd, 1964, in Houston, Texas. She graduated in 1982 as her class valedictorian. She was captain of the swim team. Um, after Andrea graduated, she completed a two-year nursing program at the University of Houston. So she's very smart really like to help people. She graduated in 1986 from nursing school, and she worked as an RN at the University of Texas um, from 1986 to 1994. So she was super into nursing, super into helping people. That was her passion as she was growing up. Um, So Andrea met her husband, Rusty Yates, at 25 at their apartment complex in Houston. That's an interesting place to meet somebody, is <laughs> your apartment <Yeah>. public. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, Andrea didn't start dating until she was 23. And before meeting Rusty, she was recovering from a previous relationship. And although she was shy and reserved, she did initiate the conversation with Rusty. Eventually, her and Rusty did move in together, and they spent most of their time in a religious study and prayer. So they were very, very religious, Andrea um was very into different religions, not just one specifically, um, <laughs> which is kind of scary, I would think. Um, in 1993, of April of 1993, her and Rusty got married, and they told guests that they planned on having as many children as nature would allow, which is also kind of scary. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, during the first eight years of their marriage, they had five children that is crazy that's like a baby every year and a half
1: they had yeah right (laughs) (laughs) I I can't lie right
0: Right. I think it depends on who you are I would love to have five children in eight years but other people I worry about their mindset (laughs) yeah that's true um so their five children consisted of four boys and one girl and their names were Noah John Paul Luke and Mary Love all of those names.
1: Let's just stop oh, right there for some, a second. There's some biblical names
0: right there. Right. So they were very religious. <laughs> all their kids wow. had um, Bible names. <laughs> just
1: kind that's of that's, freaking out even more.
0: Right, right. I know. It makes it almost more creepy that, like, she had all children that were named after people in the Bible and then
1: the way the story ends.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for all. Um, so after her second child, Andrea stopped doing activities that she enjoyed before. So she was really into things like jogging, swimming, of course, because she was the captain of her swim team, um, and a bunch of other different things. She kind of lost her interest for cleaning, just kind of really the motivation to do anything at all, really. Her wow. friends said that she yeah, her friends said that she had become reclusive. Her isolation mm. only increased after they decided
1: to home. School, all five of the children. Hmm. Right. <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, so in starting in to sound a
1: little culty more than uh, Christian.
0: Right. I'm glad. <laughs> I'm glad you said that because that's exactly what it is, and you don't even know all of the details. <laughs> oh gosh. Um, so in 1996, Rusty accepted a job in Florida, and the family moved into a get this, 38 foot trailer in Simone, Florida. Oh, my gosh. Right. So it's not just you and your husband, but all five of your kids living in a
1: 38-foot trailer. What? (laughs) Oh, my. I can't even imagine.
0: Yeah. I mean, what would you, your sanity at that point would be out of the window, like, no question.
1: I mean, my parents' first home was, like, a 700-square-foot home, and when we had when my youngest sister added to the mix, 700 square feet became too little for the four of us. I cannot imagine that many people in one tiny little space.
0: Seven of them. That's wild. And I lived in a trailer probably until I was like 11 or 12. Um, But even at that, like with two teenagers and a dad, like that was annoying. Like we did not have our own space at all.
1: Yeah, for real. I cannot. Oh my gosh. That's, I mean, hey, you got to do what you got to do sometimes. I get it. But, wow. Right. What a, a wow. stressful <laughs> childhood. Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, so, in
0: 1997, after moving to Florida, they returned to Houston, um, but they remained living in the trailer because her husband, Rusty, wanted to live light. Okay. In the very next... <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, in the very next year Rusty purchased a 350 square foot renovated bus as their permanent home a a bus a bus yeah a bus that they
1: renovated okay okay (laughs) i mean like that sounds sounds like a cool like vacation situation
0: Right. I mean I feel like if it was just you and your wife and you guys were hippies, like, heck yeah, get a bus, drive that thing around America. But you have five kids, like a baby, like oh a newborn baby.
1: Yeah, this this whole bus thing is giving me total like Manson family vision like cult everywhere.
0: Right. That's exactly what I thought when I first heard that. Oh gosh. <laughs> so we'll continue. So Rusty purchased the bus from a guy named and I might butcher his name completely, uh, but he purchased the bus from a guy named Michael Warnecki. And Michael Warnecki was a traveling minister whose views influenced their views. And Rusty only agreed with some of his ideas, but Andrea embraced the extreme ones. Oh. hmm So let me tell you a little bit about Michael. Um, he's a kind of an interesting character here, and that's somebody that, you would probably really want in your life. (laughs) Um, No. (laughs) Right. Michael preached that a woman's role was derived from the sin of Eve, and bad mothers who are bound for hell create bad children who also go to hell. He had a profound influence on her beliefs, her words, and her actions. Michael also teaches that women who work or practice birth control are witches.
1: Oh, Super interesting. (laughs) Like, okay, here's the thing. That first part of his thinking, you know, if you look at the logic of it, you can kind of see where someone could get sucked into that mindset because it's like, you know, if you're a bad mom, you're going to breed bad kids, whatever. I guess you could kind of follow the logic of, like, if you suck, you might make your kids suck. Right. But then it's just total psychosis mixed in there like birth control makes you a witch what was the right thing that makes you a witch
0: um birth control and let me see here and women who go to work
1: okay so if you work or use birth control you're a witch
0: right that was what he was preaching and i agree with you i agree that the i see where he was trying to go with the women the mothers who are bound for hell create bad children who also go to hell but Mm it's still not 100% logical. I can see where he was trying to go, but then he just turned it into his own little, like,
1: (laughs) crazy thing. Yeah. I just said that because, like, cults fascinate me. And, I mean, in a weird way, of course. Like, I'm not off to join a cult. But it's always interesting to me to, like, look and see, okay, where – like, how do people even get sucked into this world? So, you know, I just try and see, like, if there's, like, even a nugget of, some normalcy that must be what sucks them in. But this dude just sounds like a total whack job.
0: Right. How do you even spiral to letting that stop to get to that point? I I get completely what you're saying. Yeah. Um so after Andrea met Michael, her behavior and her beliefs changed drastically, um obviously. She originally had wanted to continue working as a nurse because I mentioned she was very passionate about that. And then afterwards she took up the belief that women are weak and sinful and should stay at home. So I just can't can't imagine, like, let me just stop here for a second. Like, you're living in this 350-square-foot bus with your five children and Mm -hmm. your husband who really doesn't seem like he cares how you're thinking, you know? And the one thing that you love, you decided that you're not going to go back and do. So now at this point you really have nothing except for this Michael guy to listen to.
1: Yeah. Like, I could see, you know, maybe if their needs required her to stay home, like maybe if childcare was just way too much with that many children staying at home, um, like one of the parents staying home, I could see that. But like, it sounds to me like she's allowing her husband and this cult leader to just sort of dictate everything. Right. Um, yeah. Like, do you know if their financial situation, like, dictated her to stay home? Um or at least one of them to stay home, or was this just totally a choice?
0: Yeah, I mean, by all the information that I found online, I read a lot of different articles, and none of them made it sound like this was a financial decision that caused them to do this. It made them all – every article made it sound like every decision that they decided to do was so that they could live lighter and not really stress about other things and kind of be more in tune with their religious practices, not any others. Reason. So I think that she genuinely just wanted okay. to. Because
1: <laughs> I mean, I know that there are situations where, like, ch- I mean, childcare is not cheap. Right. I'm a babysitter. Definitely not. I know <laughs> I'm not cheap to take care of other people's kids. And right. I, mean, I know daycares and things. So I know, like, sometimes, you know, there is no other choice but to have one parent stay home because it's just simply more cost effective. But if you're doing it because you're a crazy person, that's a whole other thing, which sounds right. like this <laughs> is <similar> the situation.
0: Right. <laughs> um, so after she decided that she should stay at home, Michael um, would write Andrea letters while she was at home stating things in the letters such as, God knows how wicked you are. Oh. You must accept that the reality, that this reality is your life and is under the curse of death and sin. And then also things like, you are a daughter of Eve, you must become a daughter of the Most High, which that last one isn't as bad, and I completely agree with that from a religious standpoint, but I think that he was using it more in a threatening way, rather Mm -hmm. than the way religion should be, where it's like, no, like, he loves you, like, he wants to embrace you and accept you for what you've done, not, you need to do this, or you're going to be damned kind of thing, you know? Right. I, I completely agree. Like,
1: is there anything in her behavior thus far to like indicate that she's living a? I mean, I don't mean to like point fingers or anything, but is her behavior abnormal? Because at this point, it just sounds like she's sort of a mom who's devoted to her husband in this cult.
0: Right. So that's what we're about to get into now. Because at first, that's all it was. Like, she was just very devoted. You know, they were, she stopped working, just spending time with the kids. That's all it was. But then something else takes over her. So Andrea was so captivated by Michael that both her family and her husband, Rusty, were concerned. So we're going to skip to June 16th of 1999. Um, Rusty's at work, and Andrea um, called Rusty and frantically begged him to come home. Rusty came home from work to find her shaking and chewing on her fingers involuntarily. Andrea, that day, was hospitalized after taking an overdose of pills, trying to commit suicide. She was oh transferred to a psychiatric unit and diagnosed with a major depressive order. The medical staff described Andrea as invasive in discussing her problems. On June 24th, she was prescribed an antidepressant and released. Which kind of bothers me. Like You hear a lot of stories, like especially a lot of crime cases, where it's like, they just go to the hospital release place and they're released a week later and it's almost like, no, like, they need to stay there. Like, yeah. <laughs> they need to stay there.
1: Yeah. It's, uh, oh, it's crazy. Yeah, it's terrible.
0: So once home, Andrea refused to take her medication. She began to self-mutilate and refused to feed her children because she felt like they were eating too much. Wow. Yeah, it was just terrible. I would never do that. That That's awful. Um, She thought that there were video cameras and that people and that the characters on TV were talking to her and her children. She told Rusty about her hallucinations, but neither of them informed her psychiatrist, who later during her trial testifies that she was among the five sickest patients that she's ever seen. Note your sign. We'll order you a sign for your room that says, podcast and session <laughs> <laughs>
1: <I need one. laughs>
0: i'm in the living room on my living room floor right now
1: okay. oh gosh i need my own place for that <laughs> i have my own
0: and it still doesn't get better <laughs> <laughs> um, so we'll skip to july 20th so this is about let's see about a month after she had been released from the psychiatrist initially so July 20th, Andrea put a knife to her neck and begged her husband to let her die.
1: Wow. Yeah, terrible. At
0: this point, it's like, okay, your wife, like, this was just a month ago that she got released, and it's obviously like, she's not taking her medication, and you know that. So it's like, I feel like there comes to be a point where, like, if you know somebody is not capable of helping themselves, like, mm-hmm. one, you need to help them, but not only that, like, you have five kids that this woman is taking care of every day. Like,
1: you're not worried? Right, it's damaging to her and them. Right, yeah, like you have to die. <laughs> Like not even just to their mental health, but like the heartbreak of watching their mother suffer.
0: Right, and and then being young and not being able to completely understand why their mother is so hateful to them.
1: Yeah. Mm. So
0: after she put the knife to her neck and begged her husband to let her die, she obviously was hospitalized again, and she stayed in a catonic state for 10 days. Her condition seems to improve after being treated with injections of antipsychotics. Rusty, her husband, was optimistic about drug therapy because Andrea appeared more like she was when they first met. Andrea's psychiatrist warned the couple that having another baby might bring on psychotic behavior so that they should not have any more children. Andrea's family urged Rusty to buy a home instead of a cramped bus, which should have been an obvious years ago, I feel like. Um, He purchased a nice home. It was in a peaceful neighborhood. Her condition continued to improve, and she started doing previous hobbies again. She was jogging, swimming, cooking, cleaning. She interacted well with her kids. So it was just really everything started to look up once he bought this house. She, She was doing really, really great. She was on her medicine, feeling really good. Um, mm-hmm. She expressed to Randy that she had high hopes for the future, but she viewed their time living on the bus as her failure. Wow.
1: Uh,
0: yeah. Which I think is a little crazy because he was the one that I feel like was kind of pushing towards that.
1: Yeah, that's. <clears throat> uh, I mean, mental illness just—I mean, it's such a liar. So you it know. is. It's the number yeah, one thing. It's is a big so liar. <clears throat> yeah.
0: So, March of 2000, at Randy's urging, Andrea became pregnant and she stopped taking her antipsychosis medicine. Oh,
1: jeez. Wow. November,
0: yep, November 30th, 2000, their new baby girl, Mary, was born and Andrea was coping very well. March 2001, Andrea's father died and her mental state regressed. She stopped talking, refused liquid mutilated herself and refused to feed baby Mary. She also frantically was reading her Bible. Mm. Yes. So here we get to the deep stuff here. So end of March, Andrea is admitted to a different hospital. Her new um her new psychiatrist briefly prescribed her with antipsychotics antipsychosis medicine. She was released only to return in May. She was released after 10 days and advised by her psychiatrist to think positive thoughts. That was their advice to her after everything that she had already been through. Think
1: positive thoughts.
0: Yep, that was literally.
1: (laughs) If I was that person, I'd be like, oh, okay, haven't tried that, you know.
0: Right, literally it's like, okay, think positive thoughts. You don't think that I've been doing that like that.
1: I mean, I mean, I've, you just said she was frantically reading her Bible. Clearly, she is doing everything she can think of to try and quote think positive thoughts, but clearly that's not fixing her actual mental illness.
0: Right. I mean, it's it's terrible that he would even say that to her because it's like, terrible. I, I don't even know. I can't even form a thought on that because it's like if we said just think positive thoughts to everybody out here that have some sort of mental illness, it's like the world would literally be in
1: shambles. Like, it would be. Yeah. I mean, I can't even... That's a whole rabbit trail I can't even get into.
0: Right. It's a whole rabbit trail.
1: So June 20th, 2001, Rusty
0: left for work, and he had his mother coming about an hour after he left for work to help Andrea. And... That one hour would prove to be the worst mistake of his life, wow. so during that one hour, Andrea began to act out thoughts that had consumed her for nearly two years. She filled the bathtub with water and, beginning with Paul, drowned her three youngest boys, then placed oh my gosh. them on her bed, yep, and then placed them on her bed and covered them. Mary, who was three months old at the time, was left floating in the tub. The last Mm -hmm. child alive was her oldest, seven years old, Noah. Asked mom what's wrong with Mary and then turned around and ran away when he realized what was going on. Andrea caught him as he was screaming and dragged him back to the bathroom and forced him into the tub next to Mary's floating body. He fought Mm -hmm. desperately, coming up for air twice, but she held him down until he was dead. Then she picked up Mary's body and brought her to the bed placing her in the arms of her lifeless brother. Wow. Yep, terrible. She then called the police herself with no explanation as to what was going on. Just as they needed to send an officer to her house as soon as possible, then called her husband, Rusty, only saying it's time over and over again. Very, Very, very awful, I know.
1: I just have no words.
0: I know. I mean, it's just, it's so terrible because it's like this poor lady. I mean, you want to say this poor lady, but then you think about the fact, like, okay, she murdered her five children, but she was just not in the right mind. And she was just not herself. She needed help and she was not getting the help that she needed. And because she didn't get that help she needed, it tragically resulted
1: in this. Yeah, like I mean, I don't want to say that she's completely, you know, innocent or anything because, I mean, she still took the lives of six children. But right, well, was it five or six? Five. Okay, she took the lives of five children. Um, but I mean, I mean, mental health is so vitally important. I mean. There's no mentally healthy murderer in the world, I would argue. Like I, don't, I would, too. I don't think you can have good mental health and be a murderer. Like I, I just don't think those two things are possible. I think it's outside of, like, human nature to just kill one another without something being wrong. Or, I mean, clearly, like, acts of self-defense, I don't think that's murder. That's totally different. You're right. But... Oh my gosh, this is just I just keep thinking about the kids and like their final moments, especially the seven year old that ran away. I mean his last moment is realizing that his mom has just killed all of his siblings.
0: Right. And that he was next.
1: Oh my gosh.
0: Yeah. I mean it's it's absolutely terrible, like just thinking about those children. I mean the oldest one was seven. So and the youngest one was three months old.
1: So That's it's the just babies. Babies
0: terrible. So Um, We'll talk a little bit about the trial, and then I will be done with my case. So she obviously confessed to drowning her children. There is no doubt about that. Um, Prior to her second trial, she told Dr. Michael Wellner that she waited for Rusty to leave for work that morning before filling the bathtub because she knew he would have prevented her from harming them. After the murders, police found the family dog locked up, and Rusty advised Wellner that it had normally been allowed to run free and was so when he had left the house that morning, leading the psychiatrist to allege that she locked it in a cage to prevent it from interfering with her killing the children one by one. Um, Although the defense expert testimony agreed that Yates was psychotic, Texas law requires that in order to successfully assert the insanity defense the defendant must prove that he or she could not discern right from uh, that he or she could not discern right from wrong at the time of the crime In March 2002 a jury rejected the insanity defense and found her guilty although the prosecution had sought the death penalty the jury refused that option the trial court sentenced her to life imprisonment in the Texas Department of Criminal Justice with eligibility for parole in 40 years. On January 6, 2005, a Texas Court of Appeals reversed the conviction because California psychiatrist and prosecution witness, Dr. Park Dietz, admitted that he had given maternally false testimony during the trial. Um, So basically what happened with that, I'll kind of just explain it because if you read it, it's kind of confusing. So basically during her original trial, they had a witness testify that, um, so this specific witness had basically been on, like, the planning team for, like, the Law & Order episodes. Um, Even though he was, like, a psychiatrist, he helped, like, come out with, like, certain episodes. And Mm -hmm. there was a Law & Order episode that had been created where a woman essentially drowned all of her kids, the same thing. So back in her original trial, this expert testified that this episode had come out, like, the day before she did this, basically. So essentially saying that she saw the episode, and that's what made her decide to do that. Um, But years later, they found out that that episode hadn't even been aired on TV for her to get that idea before she did it, kind of thing. So, because he had testified that, um, and that wasn't the truth at all, they basically had to redo her trial. So, on January 9, 2006, Yates again entered a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity, and on February 1, 2006, she was granted release on bail on the condition that she would be admitted to a mental health treatment facility. On July 26, 2006, after three days of deliberations, Yates was found not guilty by reason of insanity as defined by the state of Texas. She was committed to the North Texas State Hospital, Vernon Campus. In January 2007, she was moved to the Careville State Hospital, a low security mental facility in Careville, Texas. Um, so that is where she will spend the rest of her days is at a mental facility and not in prison, hopefully getting the help that she deserves. I'm sure it's a hard realization once you come back to the right mindset, you know, I just
1: killed my five kids. Yeah, I mean, that's got to be, you know, a horrible thing to realize once you are getting into the right state of mind. Um, I... I agree that, um, she should be in a mental facility because, like, that's where she needs help, um, but I gotta, I gotta say I'm okay with the fact that she's gonna spend the rest of her life there, um, given the fact that she did take six lives, even though, you know, she was not of the right mindset when it happened, um, and I have some mercy for that, like, I hope, like, she's not suffering for the rest of her life, but I also don't think she should, just be able to get to enjoy uh, freedom while her children are dead.
0: Right, right. And I completely agree. You know, it breaks my heart, obviously, that um, the postpartum psychosis, like all of it put together just yeah. tragically resulted in that. But I do agree with you where as sad as that is, those people still have to be accountable for their actions and whether that's been a jail a prison, mm-hmm. or a mental hospital, it is still important that they are getting um, the help that they need, wherever that is. Yeah. So, yeah, that is the Andrea Yates case. And the last thing I'll say about that is a lot of people were mad that her husband wasn't charged with anything because the psychiatrist told him multiple times not to leave the children alone with her. And yeah, even no, no, the should be neglected. Right. So even though it was an hour, and that in his mind wasn't a lot, well, in that whole hour, you lost your family.
1: Yeah. So that is
0: my case for the day. Well, that was
1: actually um pretty good transition, um, both parents sort of being um, at least partially responsible. My story is of two parents. Who have equal responsibility? Um, so I'm going to jump right into the story. On March 26, 2018, an SUV was discovered having going having gone off a cliff in California. Um, and originally, it appeared to be an accident because you know it's a winding road, it's a cliff. It appeared to be an accident, uh, but it didn't take very long to figure out. That there was definitely some sort of premeditation behind this crash hmm. um, so the people that were in the vehicle was Jennifer and Sarah Hart, um, and they were the mom, the mothers of six adopted children, Marcus, who was nineteen, Jeremiah and Abigail, who were fourteen, who who is fifteen, Hannah, who was sixteen, and Sierra, who was twelve um, they At the time of the crash, they were living in Woodland, Washington, Um, but they had been moving all around the country. Uh, Hmm. A theory was that they were avoiding some skeletons that were hiding in their closet, and I'm going to tell you all about that right now. Oh, great. Let's hear it. So the couple met in college. Um, I don't want to tell a ton of their story just because... I don't care to give these women any more time than they deserve. Um, but they met in college. They were both education majors. Um, they studied early education, which when you hear what they've done is absolutely terrifying. So they became parents in 2006 when they adopted Abigail and Marcus, who were biological siblings. Um, mm,
0: see, I love stories like that. You know, my mom is adopted to and has all of her biological siblings with her still.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And I'm, hey, I am so glad that your family ended up with John and Wanda and not Jennifer and Sarah because (laughs) crap. Um, So beginning two years after they became parents, uh, all the crap started happening in 2008, two years after they became parents, they were living in Minnesota Um, And there was a call to the police saying that Jennifer had struck one of the children's arms. So one of the children had a bruise on their arm. Um, And there was a whole investigation into it where Jennifer and Sarah admitted that they hit her with a belt because they stated that she... Um, had food issues that included stealing other people's food at school and eating out of garbage cans or off the floor. Um, So that's why they decided to hit her with the belt. But because the bruise resulted from her falling down the stairs, (sighs) the charges were dropped, the investigation ended.
0: What? No! If she fell down the stairs, she got pushed or hit
1: too hard. What? Right. Okay, so it it just goes on from here, okay? In February of 2009, um, they finalized the adoption of Jeremiah, Sierra, and Devante. Uh, So they got three more kids a year later. Then in 2010, just a year later, there was another allegation of abuse um, when one of the children told her teacher that she had, quote, owies on her tummy and her back. Oh, no. I
0: just got chill bumps all over
1: my body. The story she told her teacher was that her mom put her in the bathtub and turned on cold water and hit her with a closed, fit, closed fist because she had found a penny in her pocket.
0: <gasps>
1: what?
0: This poor little girl.
1: Yeah. The girl said that Jennifer hit her um because she said she found it and all of, it all continued that way. Um, so it all, she was beaten in a bathtub because her mother found a penny in her pocket. Oh, my gosh. It's just crazy to me. It's so yeah, sickening. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, so after that, um, Sarah admitted, she pled guilty to um, malicious punishment of a child, Uh, and guess what? I don't even understand how. I couldn't find anything else to explain why, but the charges were dropped. Oh, my gosh. Because it uh, it was dropped, and then it was labeled a misdemeanor domestic assault. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, so it went from... Uh, malicious punishment of a child, which would have been like an actual conviction, the children probably would have been removed, to a misdemeanor domestic assault where she only had to serve a year of community service and probation.
0: And the children got to stay.
1: Mm-hmm. Yep. And two, two days after her conviction, all of the kids, they were in kindergarten to seventh grade at that point, were pulled out of public school system and they're going to be homeschooled.
0: Oh, my gosh. Of course. It's almost like when charges, like, get dropped like that, it just makes the parent more mad, like, which is why they got pulled out of school. Like, okay, now you're not going to go to school, and now you're not going to be able to tell your teachers what's going on.
1: Yep. Um, yeah, that's exactly what I see happening here, too. Like, 100% see the pattern, like, um, it doesn't really say who called the police when her br- the bruise was on the child's arm, but I mean, definitely when the teacher reported this story, magically they're all pulled out of public school. What is that? Yeah, right. That's You're not like Jennifer. Gee, sounds, yeah, this this sounds like a complete cover up to me. Yeah, that was actually Sarah that was uh, charged for this in this situation. Okay. Um. Hmm. And then when they moved to Woodland, Washington, where uh, the family lived when um, the children were killed, there were several neighbors who came forward saying that in the middle of the night, the kids would come out and come to their house asking for food.
0: Oh, no. Oh,
1: no. So, like, these kids are being physically abused. They're being starved. We don't even know what else comes about. One caseworker reported that the kids complained of racist behavior. Um, mm. Another another witness said that the kids, quote, were extremely disciplined, almost to the point of being robotic. They would walk single file to the bedroom, and they were told when to go to the bathroom. What?
0: Okay. I, okay. Okay. I've never heard this story before, so one, I just want to say this is a good one to pick. But two, I want to say, what the heck? I just want to talk
1: to these ladies. (laughs) Yeah. I think think we all would. Um, So on March 23rd, um, Child Protective Services went out to do a check because um, I guess Washington finally started to figure out that there was a pattern here and they were going to go do a well check on the kids. Um, And nobody answered the door. Um, The next day was when Jennifer and Sarah packed up their families and began their drive down to California. Yeah. So all of this is going down. Um, History of abuse, crossing state lines. Um, There were also some other reports in Texas, but I couldn't completely verify them and I couldn't get the complete story, so I couldn't share all that information but a few of the children were adopted in texas and there were other cases in texas so Mm. all in all moving around state to state there were um five different states involved with the adoptions and abuse allegations oh my goodness these poor kids it's almost like at
0: this point like why keep the kids you know like it's obviously causing you stress too so why why are you even doing this
1: yeah, I agree. Um, and I just, I think all of it was catching up to them. Um, and I think that they realized that people were starting to piece it together. So on March 23rd when the police came knocking, I think they knew what was going to happen. Yeah. So I think that's when this thing started rolling. Oh. So this this next part is really disturbing to me. This is the most disturbing part of all of it for me. Um so when the bodies were recovered, and I'll go, I'll go more into that in a second. Jennifer had five beers in her system, so Jennifer was intoxicated. Mm. Um, and the whole time they're driving down, uh, the search history on Sarah's phone included these searches amongst other horrific things. One search was, "How easily can I overdose on over-the-counter medicines?" Can 500 milligrams of Benadryl kill a 125-pound woman? Oh. How long does it take to die from hypothermia while drowning in a car?
0: Oh, What? 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 Casey Anthony Jr.? What?
1: Yeah. So they're driving down the road. The kids, I mean, I don't know if the kids knew what was going on or not. None of us know. There's no way to know. None of them survived. But they're driving down the road the kids could potentially be thinking this is a family vacation or maybe they're even thinking we're moving again. Um, and all the while, one of their moms is intoxicated to probably prepare herself she, for what she's about to do. And her uh, their other mom is searching how to kill herself, kill her wife, and kill her children. Um, oh, my
0: God. This is so sick. Like, these poor kids, they're probably thinking, like, oh, wow, moms are being nice today.
1: Yeah. And uh, at first, only Jen, uh, excuse me, only Jennifer, Sarah, and three of the children were identified at the scene of the crash because they crashed it into the water, I believe. Um, Jen was obviously found to be intoxicated. Sarah and two of the children tested positive for dive. I'm going to really butcher this pronunciation but diphenhydramine which is it is an active ingredient in Benadryl Mm. so at least two of the children had Benadryl in their system two weeks later Sierra's body was found on a beach north of the cliff Um, so she was found um, in the most disturbing parts of a but were found in a shoe on a beach that may so ah. two months after a part of a foot was found in a shoe on a beach uh, but investigators couldn't identify the remains as a heart child until January of 2019 when a DNA sample proved it was Hannah wow um, so recently yeah and Devonte is still missing um Investigators believe he was in the crash. They just haven't recovered his body. But they're still hopeful that someone in the public will come forward and prove him to be alive still. Um, But nothing has come out yet. So either he is deep in hiding or um, someone hasn't come forward. Um, But investigators believe that's a really unlikely possibility. They really believe that he was in the vehicle And his body just hasn't been recovered. That's so sad. So Sarah and Jessica both died? Yes. Sarah and Jennifer both died. Jennifer, Um, not Jessica. And it's confirmed that five of their children died. Um, But their oldest, or I'm sorry, not their oldest, their middle child, Devante, is still missing. It's just so
0: crazy that you would do that. Like, why, like... If you're to the point where you realize you don't want these children anymore, like, you shouldn't have adopted them, like, why kill them and yourself? Why not just give them back? Like, okay, here, I, you know what, I'm not going to be the best mom. Like, I'm going to go ahead and deal with all of the things that I've already done and give the kids back. Not, I'm not going to deal with all the things that I've done. I'm going to kill myself and the kids to get rid of everything,
1: you know? Right. I mean, that's definitely a healthy and selfless mindset. But witnesses said to investigators, that the mindset that they observed from Jennifer and Sarah was if they couldn't have those kids, then no one else is going to. Oh, um, that's so sick. Yeah. And these are women who met in college and um, were early education majors and portrayed this Facebook perfect family. But um, they just, you know, they portrayed this idea of a happy family. They would post pictures on Facebook all the time of them wearing matching t-shirts and saying things like love always wins. And, you know, they're just portraying this idea of like this loving family. Um, but clearly there was a lot of really dark stuff going on in their home. Um, yeah, that's terrible. I mean, and I think it
0: even hits even harder because of how recent it was, you know?
1: Yes. Um, and, of course, because Jennifer and Sarah both died, there wasn't uh, the ability to have, like, a typical trial. Um, but on April 4th, 2019, the coroner's office announced that a 14-person jury um, unanimously ruled that Jennifer and Sarah Hart intended for their six children to die along with them when Jennifer Hart drove her family off a cliff in 2018. So their are um, report their manner of death will be listed for the six kids as homicide and Jennifer and Sarah will be listed as suicide. Um, And those 14 jurors also had the opportunity to list manner of death as accident, suicide, natural causes or at the hands of another person and every single one of them unanimously decided it was homicide. There is no other way to put it. Well,
0: I'm glad that they decided that. It's that's awful. I mean, that's so awful. There's so yeah. many people out here that, like, would love to adopt kids or love to have their own and just don't have the resources to do so, whether it's with whether that's within their own body or, like, financial resources, and it's, like, it's terrible, and like, you could have found a family for each of those kids without doing that.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, there's, there's so many couples waiting on long lists to be parents, and these women somehow got six kids um, and just abused them for the entire time they had them and then murdered them. Oh, that's
0: terrible. I've never heard that story.
1: Yeah, it's horrible. And the everything I read just really pointed to the need for more communications between states about histories of abuse and abuse reporting. Um, I mean, this case is just a prime example of it. Because these women were able to move to different states, and their abuse history just didn't follow them. Um, Yeah, and were able to continue adopting children with abuse in their past, which I don't even understand. Because I know a family that fosters kids, and I know your uncle just adopted a kid out of foster care, and like I think we both know how rigorous it is. Excuse me for them and their loving, beautiful families who want to give these kids great homes, and they have to jump through all these hoops, but then these people who just abuse their kids and neglect them just seem to get kid and kid and kid and kid, and, kid, and it's just like, what is going on?
0: Yeah, it's like, who is your caseworker? I just want to know. I just want to talk to them, because what? Exactly. Yeah, I mean, it's, this story was very heavy, obviously, because adoption and fostering is so close to my family specifically, like with my parents, with my mom and then my aunt, my uncle and now my new cousin, Lucas. Super cute by the way. Um so it's just it's awful to hear stuff like this. Like when you just know so many of these situations that go great and they change the kids life and that's what's supposed to happen. And that's what those kids mm-hmm. were expecting to happen and then they all get murdered instead of yeah really getting their life turned around,
1: which is what adoption should be. (laughs) Yeah. Adoption should just be beautiful. Yeah. Because whether whether your biological parents abandoned you or weren't good parents, or if they died, whatever it is, or if they just simply couldn't take care of you on their own, like your new family, people who chose you should be able to love you and cherish you and give you the kind of life that you deserve but these moms were just despicable people and I mean ruined and ended their children's lives yeah it just makes me crazy yeah that's
0: terrible that's very that's awful and the biggest thing like you said people who chose you chose to do this to you as well that's terrible Mm
1: -hmm. yeah wow wow that was those are both good cases yeah that was It was a wild ride, man. It was a
0: wild ride, man. I hope everybody (laughs) was buckled up
1: the whole time.
0: (laughs) Well, guys, thank you. That was um, our first podcast, like I said. So hopefully this audio sounds pretty good and you guys enjoyed this. Um, Hannah and I will be discussing personally when the next episode will be. What should our next theme be?
1: Oh, you know I'd love to do a good human trafficking case.
0: Okay, you want to do that? Yeah. All right, let me write that down. All right, so we're going to do a human trafficking case for our next podcast. So if you guys like this podcast, please make sure to share it to any of your crime junkie friends. Hannah and I would greatly appreciate that. This is something that um, we're both obviously pretty interested in, and if we can use this as a platform to maybe change some lives or some lives or bring light to other things. but is definitely what we want to do. So um, if, you guys, if you guys have any suggestions, any cases that you would like to hear us dive more into detail on, um, please just reach out to us. I'm sure eventually we'll set up maybe some sort of Instagram where we can post some of the evidence that we talk about on here and things so that you guys can reach out to us as well on there. But until then, Hannah, do you have anything that you'd like to say? Nope. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, (laughs) I'm so unprepared for this. (laughs) No, you're fine. If you guys can't tell, Hannah and I have been actually talking about this for a while, but we kind of just were like, okay, Sunday at 5, let's do it. And then we were both running late. So um, like I said, sorry, it'll get better. Bear with us. Buckle up. It's a wild ride. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Well, until then, guys, we appreciate you so much, and we hope you enjoyed this.
1: Bye. (laughs) Bye.